I am a terrible human being, I admit that. Gynecology, gynecological in nature? Gyneco- gynecological. Ah, uh, pint with the boys in a pub full of noise. It was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet, stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying, Beware of the leopard. Welcome to Beware of the Leopard, an apocryphal podcast with many omissions, covering the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in alphabetical order. I'm Mark Stedman, the best bang since the big one. I'm Danny Smith, and don't try and out with me. I would get Stranger Things free with my breakfast cereal. I'm Joe Bounds, and I made a big mistake coming down from the trees in the first place. Before we begin, um, Andy Taylor got in touch on Twitter to point us to a fascinating discovery of an Apple II, or an Apple SE rather, that was once used by Douglas Adams. If you're interested in finding out more, there's a link in the show notes, and you can follow Andy TUK on Twitter. What is an Apple SE? It is an old computer. Right. It, I think it's it's the second edition. So I think some people call it the 2E, uh, but I believe it was the, the Apple uh, second edition uh, machine. And it is uh, a little, you know, one of these tiny little machines with the, the, the big CRT monitor and the and the chunky uh, cream keyboard because everything was cream then. It's pre-Mac, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and it has... Uh, it had some of his private uh, files. It was some kind of email server, and so he's um, he's not shared the files, uh, but he's uh, he's donated the machine. Danny and Mark, promise me now that you'll destroy my machine in the event of my death. Thank you. Oh, oh, mate. I think uh, I think Danny has already put in that request. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And don't check any of the histories or any of the folders. Just no. do a Terry Pratchett and throw it under a steamroller, <laughs> and ignore any demons that fly from it call back to last week uh speaking of last week we completed our run through the a's and uh, the johns and i talked through the babel fish and bartledan so let's carry on with the bees and a star system responsible for a memorable slogan bastablon is the star system whose ad executives came up with the marketing phrase if you've done six impossible things this morning why not round it off with breakfast at millieways the restaurant at the end of the universe john what's the best bit of marketing you've ever accomplished well it was uh, obviously whatever i did to uh, stag myself uh, a beautiful wife but <laughs> doesn't uh, bastablon uh, sound just like the particular star system where everybody would be wearing red trousers and uh, those uh, lovely sort of slightly checked shirts mm, and uh, hair which is <laughs> uncontrollably uh, just advertising i've had to deal with a lot of uh, advertising and marketing types in my in my uh my time on this planet unfortunately and um i as such i don't like to uh really call anything i do marketing but i do like to come up with um odd ideas and um you've heard of talk like a pirate day right yeah well i about uh in a ooh, maybe about 2011 i decided to uh have a talk like a Brummie day is in Birmingham, uh, where I'm from. So people take the mickey out of the axe. And I thought, okay, they have pirates. We can have that. And I just sent out a press release, as you do. And suddenly, like, people were phoning me up and going, oh, yeah, so what's happening to talk like a Brummie day? And I go, well, just, just people just talk like a Brummie in their own way, on their own. It doesn't involve me. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to get up. Uh, <laughs> Crucially, <laughs> I don't have to get up. Um, but uh, it, it really, uh, it took its own um, life, as I say. And there was meant to be a large event in the uh, Victoria Square in the centre of Birmingham. And thank God 
Uh, I picked November because it was rained off and I didn't have to go. <laughs> it would have been just, it would have been a strange vocal equivalent of sort of Village of the Damned or uh, one of those zombie films with just a bunch of people go, no, yes. You know, instead of like the sort of moan of the zombies, it would have just been, no, right, yes, the rain, it's not very nice, is it? Hang on, the uh, National Talk Like a Brummie Day event was in Victoria Square. That's in Birmingham, right? Yeah. So that's a, just a bunch of people turning up and talking, <laughs> essentially. This was well, this is one of the reasons I felt it appetite not to get too involved in it. <laughs> uh, because particularly for me, is I didn't have to do anything. Uh, like I, and I really, I didn't have to do anything, and I didn't want to do anything. Uh, I, <laughs> I just thought it was. Uh, I thought it might be funny. I just thought, you know, it's one of these things. You go, I'll stick, that'll be funny. I'll stick a website up, and uh, yeah, um, mark the marketing was too efficient. <laughs> Wasn't that the thing that put you on every journalist's um, Rolodex about, like, oh, this is the Brummy guy. If we need an opinion about Birmingham, like, we'll phone him up and he can. Yeah, and also um, about accents, bizarrely. So I was once on phone up and asked if I'd do and do a segment on BBC Radio Wales over the phone, obviously. <laughs> and uh, it was like with some sort of person who was saying, um, oh, accents are all disappearing or whatever. And I uh, went on there and I was just feeling in a slightly playful mood. And I claimed that accents were so localised that I could claim how far up the road between Birmingham and Bear would people lived <laughs> and of course in the in the, the the producers and the audience in wales had absolutely no idea what i was talking about so i got away with it and i've no of course you bloody well can't fake news fake news fake news the best bit of marketing i ever did i once made a fake brochure for an art ex- exhibition you know the icon gallery in birmingham mm. as part of my um uh, art degree. I made a fake brochure for an artist that claimed to have nailed a dog's foot to the middle of the gallery floor, <laughs> and you were invited to come and watch the dog suffer as 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 all artists suffer, uh, is suffering. And I made about fifty of these and posted them all around Birmingham. And uh, did um, Sarchi come to buy it? <laughs> it never. There was never any mention of it. And um, a few days after I I put them all out, I went around and checked, and they'd all been collected in, like in, and like it was part of a massive effort. So I think word got back to them, and they'd just kind of had a mass kind of shit, get these back. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you if you have a copy uh, anywhere, dear listener, if you are if you are uh, if you are in the Birmingham area at the at the time of circulation, then um, uh, tweet us in a photo. <laughs> It'll be lovely to see it at BTL Podcast. You're a terrible man, Smith. A terrible man. I am a terrible human being. I admit that. Uh, now, can anybody tell me where I put my towel? Bath Sheets in Space is a book about towels by Woidol Zing, which is far too large to carry, but sits magnificently on fashionable coffee tables. A few years ago, Apple released a compendious tome celebrating their various designs throughout the decades. Danny, are you much given to coffee table books? No, hate coffee tables for a kickoff. They're just a depository of just shit. Like, I've never seen a tidy coffee table. It's it's always grubby and just got people's pocket shit on it. Or yeah, I I I despise the idea of a coffee table. 
So they're for guests, uh, like uh, I just, maybe they're for like virtue signaling, like oh, I yeah. read books about art. That's exactly what they are. I, but you know, uh, it's, they're supposed to be for so the guests can read them. When would a guest get to read a coffee table book? Like unless- it's when when they're waiting for you to come in, you know. So you, you know, it's when, when they come in, you usher them into the living room and they sit there, and then when you're ready to receive them, you call their number and the, and they start reading their their copy of uh, of Men's Health from 1987. When when the Host slopes off for a shit, maybe. <laughs> maybe that's the time. They should be called shit books. Or if they're having an awkward argument with their partner in the kitchen and you need somewhere to put your eyes that isn't looking at them, pretending that it's not happening. You know, when they're in the kitchen going, you fucking shit the fucking face off, fucker. No, you fucking yeah. what about then well, can, we're in company. Look, we'll have this conversation later. Then you can you can read some glossy pages about belts or some shit. I don't know. <laughs> That's the only circumstances I could see coffee table books actually have any use. I've got. I'm sitting by my bookshelf. My bookshelves are quite carefully filed, not in alphabetical order or anything, in quite a weird esoteric way that only I understand. Of course. But no matter what, but no matter what filing system you eventually end up with, you simply have to have one shelf which is for books that are slightly too big to go on the other shelves. Yes. <laughs> and this is where coffee tables books go. And that's just the, the appalling thing because I like to keep all my sort of American literature or my rock biographies together. And yet over there, we, I've got a shelf that's got something about Kylie, then some Eric Hopper paintings, <laughs> then a book about gardening and the complete Beatles lyrics. <laughs> they don't go together. Uh, and now a warning. The next portion of the podcast contains language which some listeners may find offensive. Belgium is an intergalactic swear word, the embodiment of whose concept is so revolting that the publication or broadcast of the word is utterly forbidden in all parts of the galaxy, except one, where they don't know what it means. Mr Bounds, what does it mean? It's got to be biological. Sure. It's probably gendered. Gynecological in nature? Gynecological. Almost the reverse, in fact. Ah. I was going to suggest it was... Um, Balak. No, no, not no, not like the other end. Balls. I mean, uh, uh, no, bomb. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm I'm thinking it's something, it's something up a lady's bottom. Up a lady's bottom specifically. <laughs> well, because most most swear words are horribly gendered. Mm. And I can only assume that in this universe, the universe where uh, um, Zayfod can get a uh, trillion forcibly married, <laughs> that that sort of sexism and patriarchy persists. This is um, probably a vile and gendered swear word, unless, of course, it means a uh, country where they put mayonnaise on French fries <laughs> and also have uh, done perfectly well without a government for about six years, from yes, what I remember. they have. And, uh, yeah, they, they do perfectly well with waffles and chocolate. Thank you very much. Th- there is form for irrationally hating Belgium. <laughs> Uh, there's a guy called Charles Bardler. He was the guy that um, wrote The Painter of Modern Life, where he identified the flaneur, um, which is like where the situationists took their derive from. Um, he's credited with uh, coming up uh, coming up with the term modern and modernism uh-huh, to describe okay. uh, an art movement. So was this, what, 19th century? Yeah, he, he was, um, uh, he was a, a friend of uh, Manet and... Mm-hmm. Um, he was an all-round top bloke because he, he reviewed art and he, he did uh, poetry himself and he was a creative. Just a, a quick clarification because I know Catnip on Twitter likes it when I explain things for people outside of Birmingham. So for people outside of Birmingham, when uh, Danny says a friend of Manet, he means the painter. He's not saying many in a Birmingham accent. <laughs> yes, the, the the painter, Manet. Yes. Um, 
and he irrationally hated Belgium. <laughs> hated it. He he was publishing tracks about it. He was writing a book, and this is the, the name of the book is uh, a ridiculous capital. He never finished it, so it never got published. <laughs> But he, he despised, for some reason, he despised, he had to live there for a little bit and he hated it from the first moment and for the ent- his entire life, he despised it. He, co- he called Belgians the stupidest race on earth, or at least there's non-stupider. Wow. And he's also on, also on record as saying, the sight of a Belgian woman gives me the vague desire to faint. Good. Well, uh, casual um, xenophobia over with. Um, let's do this. This episode is brought to you thanks to the largesse of Audible and their wonderful audiobook service. If you'd prefer to have someone read you a story than have to hold a stupid book up to your stupid face, then Audible's got you covered with over 180,000 titles and their great listen guarantee, which means if you don't love a book, you can swap it out for something else. This week, we wanted to recommend Stranger Than We Can Imagine, Making Sense of the 20th Century, written and read by John Higgs. You can pick this up and try out the Audible service for 30 days by going to audibletrial.com slash leopard. And we thank Audible for their support of Beware of the Leopard. And now, on to yet another star system. Beetlejuice is a star whose name is so daft it saved Douglas Adams a day's work in coming up with it. It's the ninth brightest star in the sky and is part of the constellation of Orion. And just to be clear, Mr Hickman, uh, who will join us in a later episode, all of these are real facts. It is also the place from which hails Ford and Zaphod. We know they don't get sarcasm, they practice some kind of uh, poly-maternity and have some very specific turns of phrase. Mr. Smith, what else do we know about Beetlejuice? Uh, there was an amazing film named after it. Yep. Who doesn't like Beetlejuice? Was it? No, was it spelt the same? Uh, no, it's not. It's not yeah. in the title, but in the script it is. And if you look at all the literature in the actual film, it's actually spelt like the star. Beetlejuice pops up in most uh, sci-fi authors' repertoire. Like, they, like every one of them makes at least one reference to it sooner or later. Um I don't know, it's just a pleasing combination of letters. Like, if I spotted that, I'd, I'd mark it out for a name to use. It's quite near to us as well, isn't it? Or something like that. I don't know. Do, am I wrong? It is in the constellation of Orion, which is, like, one of the biggest constellations that that people know about. So it is, you know, it is quite famous. It's uh, Apparently the name is derived from the Arabic, for, uh, which would mean the axilla of Orion. Uh, an axilla is the armpit Beetlejuice may be what Roy Batty was referring to in his death speech. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of a lion. Now, there are two stars that make up the connecting shoulder to the arm of the body of the Orion constellation. And one of them is Beetlejuice. Does anyone know what the other shoulder is called? No. No, of course you don't. It's it's Bellatrix. And there's been an Icelandic band called Bellatrix. But yeah, I, that, I really like that fact. It made me happy. Is that one of the only uh, little bits in the uh, sort of trilogy that we uh, get to see um, interactions between um, people, a dysphoria of a, a culture? Uh, you know, they've left their homelands far, far away, but they're still going to, uh, you know, talk in the old Beetlejuicean dialect and uh, do weird handshakes or whatever. It's um, It just shows that the universe is not 
ironed everything out just yet. Vogons pop up occasionally. And not just the one Vogon ship. There's there's like multiple ships and people from But there but but then we, we still we visit uh we, we understand a bit more about Vogue Sphere than we do about Beetlejuice. And in the T V series we do hear Ford and Zaphod sing the uh, Beetlejuice and Death anthem. Oh yeah. When they uh, when they're about to get blown up and and blown into uh, milliways. Um but I yeah that that's sort of if if I'm understanding John's point that that sort of displacement of these are two characters uh very much you know light years out out of their of their home world um but unlike Arthur's theirs still exists they seem quite competitive as well in in weird ways like so um when uh, Ford and uh Zaphod meet they try desperately hard to outcall each other mm-hmm and several times through the different books, Zaphod um, makes a point to like, oh, you can't outweird me or you can't out something me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe Beetlejuiceans have a particular competitive streak. And from a real spacey thing, we move to a completely made up one. The people of Bethselamin are so worried about the cumulative erosion by 10 billion visiting tourists a year that any net imbalance between the amount you eat and the amount you excrete whilst on the planet is surgically removed from your body weight when you leave. So every time you go to the lavatory, it is vitally important to get a receipt. And that is uh, thus completes my audition for the uh, the republication of the Hitchhiker's Guide audiobook. Uh, Bounder, what's the most beautiful place you've ever been to? This is hard because anywhere with my wife. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm battling against um, I'm battling against the ideas of um, you know trying to seem cool and trying to go with my image and just <laughs> saying some uh, rundown concrete, uh, <laughs> some brutalist architectural paradise. It's got to be Brand John. It's got to be Brand John. Come on. I, I've actually I was in Liverpool recently, which I never really spent a lot of time in, and um, some very beautiful places uh, in Liverpool, particularly um, St Luke which is a church which was bombed during the war. But I'm going to go uh, another way and suggest that the most beautiful place I've ever been is probably um, the English Peak District. Oh, oh my God. Oh, shut the up. Hill, the hills, they roll. The uh, the trees, they roll. The pub quizzes, they're quite easy. They roll. Um, the, yeah, they roll, and the, and the bottles of wine you get for winning said pub quizzes are quite uh, easy to roll. sneak back to the lodging house. And um, no, it's, it's, it's just gorgeous. And it was. What, why is rolling an important facet of beauty for you? Um, what about rocking, John? What about rocking? Rocking just suggests <laughs> instability. Rolling <laughs> suggests a movement to the future, and even the even the dark satanic mills, as it were, are now uh, lovely uh, holiday homes. Um, no, it's it's no, it's genuinely beautiful place. Um, and God, I've just spoiled everything, haven't I? <laughs> It's nice to have a moment of, uh, of 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 real talk, of you know, a, a moment of of genuine appreciation without the yoke of of the ironic eye roll. I went to the Taj Mahal. It was all right. Was it basically fine? Yeah. In your India travels, Dan, did you get a receipt for everything that you went when you went to lunch? Mate, I wouldn't be able to carry my bag if I got a receipt for everything I left in a vat. You very much got a mental receipt, I'd imagine. Oh, mate, I was I was shitting out food that I ate when I was a baby. That was like the, <laughs> I thought there was organs that I'd left in some hole in the ground in India. 
So, uh, we'll reveal the results of our Netflix casting poll next week. Uh, but for now, uh, we got this question via Twitter, which I thought it might be worth discussing. Lawrence Dagstein asks, what's your favourite Douglas Adams book or story besides Hitchhikers? This, okay, the, the, the pendant in me is going to say, well, you know, Restaurant at the End of the Universe isn't Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So long and thanks for all the fish isn't Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So it would be very what? easy to pick one of the other books. What? 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 What's this? What? The name of the... He's asking which one you enjoy that isn't the name Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You're a silly person. And my, 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 my pendant uh, side of me is going, yes. Yes, Restaurant of the Indian Universe is equally as good. Uh, my uh, pedant side is just suggesting that you're a pedant, not a pendant, unless you're hanging around someone's neck. I'm dyslexic. you gotta, you got to give me a pass or whatever I say. <laughs> play Except my dis- when it's about pedantry. Oh, yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> I did respond on Twitter, and um, I, yeah, I said uh, Last Chance to See, uh, which mm. um, is the beautiful uh, book that... Um, did with Mark Carwardine about essentially hunting for some lots of, uh, you know, almost extinct animals. And it's... Not hunting. Well, hunting for, not hunting, <laughs> hunting for. Hunting high and low, in the words of... Uh, Pursuing. Aha. Searching. Um, questing. There's a phenomenally funny bit, and I'm not sure if all of it was also made into a, a radio series, but the one bit... Uh, which definitely was, is when they were in the uh, Yangtze River in uh, uh, China looking for um, dolphins, which are now extinct as far as I'm aware. But they were basically hunting round to try and find some condoms to put over the microphones. They could put the microphone in the river. Yes. And none of them speak um, Mandarin <laughs> or Cantonese or whatever it is you're meant to speak there. Yeah. And uh, it's just, it's, it, it works brilliantly on as a piece of audio, but when you hear it, when you see it described, when you read it described mm-hmm. in the book, and it gets into a lot more detail, and the sheer embarrassment of them just uh, <laughs> trying to describe what they would want these things for, but yet there were three blokes in the shop. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you to Lawrence for the tweet, and don't forget you can get in touch at BTL Podcast. And now, a diptych of bills. Bill Patterson played the assistant Ark Turin mega freighter pilot and rain god Rob McKenna in the radio series. He was also in the 2012 Dirk Gently TV series and has a couple of Doctor Who episodes up his uh, sleeve or uh, under his belt. Ten points to whichever one can guess which TV series I most associate him with. Dr. Zhivago. No. Great British Bake Off. <laughs> no, and I'm surprised that Bounder, especially you, didn't get it straight away. Is it because he played Ali Fraser in Alfie the Same Pet? Of course it's because he played Ali Fraser in Alfie the Same Pet. That's living all right. Uh, pint with the boys. <laughs> that song is almost never out of my head. <laughs> I want it played at my funeral. <laughs> Uh, very good. Okay. Um, and uh, from one bill, let's uh, make an honourable mention of another. Bill Wallace played Prosser and Jelts in the radio series. Can anyone tell me why this might be significant? I can think of a sort of um, a parallel in the sense that they're both people who want to build bypasses. You've got to build bypasses. That's basically it. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's not a spoiler. It's, it, I just think it, it, was, it was a lovely turn that uh, the, the man who played the, the two people responsible for demolishing Arthur's home, are, uh, are the, it's, it's the same, it's played by the same person. So obviously, 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 in the first 
first episode and first book of everything, there is the parallel between the demolition of the house and the demolition of the earth. Mm-hmm. It's not explored much after that, is it? No. A lesser novelist would have thought that that was a big idea you had to go back to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, from what part of my understanding is that uh, the idea, that specific idea came from a different radio series. He was working on, uh, I think, six episodes of a radio series, which is going to be called The Ends of the Earth. And that was one of them. Uh, I I believe that uh, one of the ends of the Earth was that it was going to be destroyed to make way for a hyperspace bypass, and I think um, the the character would you know would have played the the same kind of role. So I think it's one of those that when you when you've already had that idea in your back pocket, and then you go to a new project, it's probably a little bit easier to just sort of slot that one in because you haven't sweated over it. As part of this project, you can almost go, oh, yeah, that's in the bank. Well, we can use that. And, I, you know, I, I can think of other stuff now. I, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to belabor that particular point. And thematically, it's not a million miles away from the stuff that runs throughout his books where the, um, you know, as above, so below, the, the macrocosm is the microcosm. Um, so stuff that is incredibly small actually translate into uh, incredible great truths. Um, I can't think of many examples right now, but like there's... Well, there's- an interesting example might be the, the, the very small planet of Cricket, which was very nestled away and, and tucked away in its own little, effectively its own little universe uh, until Hactar came along and um, coddled the, the planet in a dust cloud and then sent a spaceship hurtling through it which then became uh you know which, which then got them spurred them on catalyzed them to then try and have an enormous impact on the entire universe yeah maybe i mean maybe i mean that like he plays with scale a lot he he, he, yes. he pulls out and says that this is a great truth and he says this is actually a a, a little thing uh so even the joke about digital watches is is pulling out and going in the context of the universe digital watches don't mean anything but people kind of are into them now like and and even physical scale the you know the um the 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 fleet that that tore uh, light years across the galaxy only to be swallowed by a small dog those who study the complex interplay of cause and effect in the history of the universe say that this sort of thing is going on all the time but are powerless to prevent it it's just life they say now we've had the bill it's time for biscuits <laughs> Adams tells a wonderful story in Arthur's voice about a packet of biscuits being eaten at a train station. Danny, I cast you in the role of investigative journalist with the task of finding out whether this was apocryphal or not. What have you found out? Um, I'm going to have to put a big fat maybe on this. Ooh. Now, there is a lot of evidence that stacks up to say that he didn't. Um, the Snopes article... Uh, on it, and there is a Snopes article that says that mm-hmm. um, there were uh, references before that because basically he was touting that story around uh, for so long. Um, thanks for all the fish. It's in so long. So thanks for all the fish. Um, and he was telling that story on the talk shows that he was doing and interviews that he was doing, mm-hmm. using that as his little, you know, two minute story thing. And they were saying, no, that story existed before the book and before he was talking about it. Um, so the snow cycle says that there's nothing before 1972. There's no references before, but there's lots of different versions of that story about. So that kind of 
gives the impression. So, uh, so long, the Franks for the fish was out eighty two or eighty four. It was an even number. Um, mm-hmm. So that gives the impression that he didn't actually. It didn't actually happen to him, and he just gave like a version of it. Yeah. But when you think about the timeline, he was born in. 1952, mm-hmm. which would make him about 20 when that story appeared. Mm. Now that story is possibly the actions of a of a young ma- young hesitant man. Like that that is the actions of a 20 year old that doesn't know what to do. So I'd say it it still could have been him. He could have told it at a story uh, that told that story at a party, and that yeah, story a bit, a bit of after dinner speaking or something, and that that passed on. Like it, it's still entirely possible that it came from him. And another another piece of evidence is thematically, because all these stories after it um, always involve some sort of moral to it, which the moral is like you don't because the person opposite him that takes the biscuit is. But do we all know the biscuit story? Should we start with the biscuit story? It, I mean, if if you're if you're unfamiliar, if you haven't read all of the books, uh, it is it's it, it's a it's a wonderful story. Um, and in summary, uh, Adams will say it's Adams sits down at a train station, having bought a packet of biscuits and a newspaper. Uh, the biscuits are covered by the newspaper. He he's uh, reading the newspaper. He unwraps the biscuits and and uh, uh, and and leaves them open. And then the uh, guy across from whom. Uh, across from which he's sat next to um the guy that is sitting opposite him uh reaches out and takes a biscuit and adams is british and can't understand why this would happen and so he just looks the guy straight in the eyes and uh takes a biscuit and they um they both go biscuit for biscuit finishing off the packet and then the guy gets up to leave and as adams uh also gets uh, up to leave puts his paper away he notices his unopened packet of biscuits sat under the newspaper is that a fair summation of the story that's the story that adams tells you yeah that sucked the life out of it uh, but yeah. but now we're up to date there's a, in my um, investigations this I stumbled across a Reddit thread where someone had posted, I think, um, uh, a, a written-down version of it from the Salmon of Doubt, or then someone posted a link to uh, telling on David Letterman, I think. But the joy of this Reddit thread is the fact that lots of um, lots of people, mainly Americans, are having uh, really interesting uh, discussions about all aspects of the Hitchhiker's Guide, now which they love Douglas's work. And then there's a creeping realisation amongst a lot of them that they don't know what the joke is. They haven't got it. They haven't understood it. They haven't got that the it was not wasn't his biscuits. They just don't know what's going on. And at some point, they're all just going. There's this this like huge great listen going. Oh, they're his biscuits. <laughs> wow, a collective understanding of the punchline <laughs> of the story. It. It's fascinating. And I th- I wonder what that I wonder what that was about because it has become at least whether or not it originated with Douglas a, an urban trope, a, a, a legend or a, a piece of our folk memory. Which leads me to my conclusion. Um okay, there's two possibilities. He heard that and adapted it. Or it actually happened. Well, there's three possibilities. He made it up, or it happened to him, and he crafted it in the retelling. Every which way, that makes him really, really smart because all the all the other versions of it that float around um, involve some sort of social inversion. So the person sitting opposite is always, I don't know, West Indian, which because ooh, crazy, or they're punks, or they're and the person that has the biscuits is always some sort of like straight laced white lady, normally. 
And so the moral of the story is don't judge people by what they look like because they could be your biscuits, which is a bit shit. So if he didn't, if that didn't happen to him, he took that story, which is a bit shit, and used it to tell this really interesting, incredible truth about being English and awkwardness and like being a man, but but filtered through the English lens. I'm interested in this in this notion of, and and maybe there's a there's a degree of naivety about uh, about this question. But the writer, I, I I wonder, as a writer, would you feel comfortable retelling so often a story that was not your own? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and passing it off as your own. I think sometimes you invent things, and then you're no longer even sure yourself whether they really happen to you. I mean, I have anecdotes that I can't be be absolutely positive that happened to me. I can only I can only remember the telling of them. Absolutely the same. Absolutely the same. Yeah. It's also in the, the soap cycle, but I, I didn't know. I've not read it. But it, apparently, Ian McEwan does this uh, routine, this story in his book Solar. Yes, I've read that, and I remember I remember the uh, the allusion to it, and and thinking, hang on a minute, I, that's you, that, what? Later on in the book, there is a reference to someone saying, "Oh no, that's not true. That's just an urban legend," which is in which I suppose is an interesting and layered one, and he must have known. I don't believe that Ian McEwen hadn't read uh, Douglas Adams. No, no, absolutely not. He's a he's a he's a fine writer and a, and a more educated man than I. So no, I I, I certainly don't. Uh, yeah, don't assert that he uh, he 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 ignored the uh, the Adamsness of it. And and maybe it's one of those things where a sort of a version of this story happens at some points uh, to to different people. You know, there's there's often the story, and it it comes up every now and again. In fact, I think there was one. Um, I've heard twice this year about a man who orders, and I think it can, it can probably have happened, uh, in, in any time in, in modern history, actually, as long as you have the, the, the telephone effectively, a man, um, orders up a prostitute and then the woman turns up and it's his wife. Um, and I've heard that news article posted a couple of times, uh, under different headings. Isn't that a song? Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking of the Pina yeah. Colada. Yeah, yeah. See, they're, they're, exactly. I don't, I don't um, think either of them are sex workers in that, but yeah, they're no. Really- but it's a, it's a similar it's a similar thing because they're both having dalliances, uh, except yeah, without without uh, remuneration. If it wasn't an original uh, Douglas Adams thing, he, the skill, yeah, as Danny says, the skill in the telling is so much so that we we I think we need to uh, award it to him anyway. Uh, and sadly, we've reached the bottom of this particular barrel. So, Mr. Smith, what will you be doing until next we meet? Um, I will. I've got a um, zine out actually um, in uh, raising money for um, charities in Manchester to do with the uh, MEN bombing. Um, that's called Gig of My Life. Uh, that you can find that at gigofmylife.co.uk. You can buy copies of the zine that I put together. Just uh, is it looks really really good. So I'm very impressed with it so uh, yeah do find that gigofmylife.co.uk yeah gigofmylife.co.uk or you can find me uh, at probably drunk on the old twitters very nice Mr Bounds um, I don't know where it'll appear online yet so you'll have to just go onto twitter and follow me at Bounder and I'll tell you but uh, me and John Hickman started a record label yesterday 
and our first single should be uh, dropping in a few days' time. It's it's also for charity, but I won't spoil it by saying it. Uh, you just have to follow me on Twitter and find out all about it. At Bounder on Twitter, then. Uh, so that may be out by the time this episode airs. So that's exciting. I'm excited. And that just about wraps it up for The Leopard. You can find the show at btlpodcast.com along with all of our contact details. Drop us an email to feedback at btlpodcast.com if you want to tell us a spurious story. And don't forget to subscribe to the show in your podcast app. Just search for Beware of the Leopard. Thanks again to Audible for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget to pick up your free audiobook and start your free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash leopard. And if you have a moment, do please rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps people find the show and makes us feel hoopy. We'll be back next Thursday. So until then, share and enjoy. I recently spent the summer up uh, in Birmingham um, stopping at my mum's and um, my mum has started to turn over during the adverts so I don't shout at the television. (laughs)